think you might know something or you think even when all the facts point to a certain outcome, more than likely somebody has not played every angle of devil's advocate to see what can happen. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com. And there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Best ever listeners, how you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast where we only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Alex Brodowski. How you doing, Alex? I'm doing great, Joe. How about yourself? I'm doing great as well and looking forward to our conversation. A little bit about Alex. He's a real estate developer and founder of Westmont Capital Group. Last year, they had $30 million worth of inventory they moved. He owns multifamily retail and light industrial properties based in Nashville, Tennessee. With that being said, Alex, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Sure. I've done just about everything that you can think of in terms of real estate in this wild journey of trying to figure out what exactly it is that I'm trying to do. I started off as a realtor because I knew that I wanted to do deals for myself. So obviously the number one is to sell other people's stuff. So I did that for maybe a year or so, but about six months into it, I realized that I needed to really get something moving. So I hustled hard to try to move the ball to get something going. And just like I tell people all the time in real estate, It's two times harder and it takes three times longer to do a deal. I don't care what deal it is. That's just kind of how it goes. So this story, even though it's long, I think it can impact a lot of people just so they understand where people start. And it doesn't change the bigger the deals get. It took me six months to get my first deal done. And I got 1800 (laughs) bucks. And I remember thinking. You didn't lose $1,800. There's that. Yeah, that was a positive. I didn't have any debt on the property because I was an agent. But that really was like, what in the world? But for some reason, at the same time of the gut punch of the reality of the hard work was also the reward that, well, it does work. It's not a waste of time. So I probably did that for a year, like I said, until I had, and I mean, the minute I had enough pennies in the piggy bank to buy something, I was ready to do it because I can't stand working with other people when I don't get to make the decisions. So I actually bought a house to flip and it was 40 something thousand dollars and I put another 40 into it and then I sold it for 130. So the profit margin came out pretty good on that. It was like 50%. And then from there, I moved into some multifamily units and there was a deal that I found that they were dilapidated in a ghetto and the price was just too good. I couldn't pass it up. I wasn't even in the market for it. I had no intention of being a multifamily landlord, but I called up a partner and I said, hey, I think this is something that we should do. And then he said, okay, let's do it. So we got into that and we actually ended up getting in with a lot of the other landlords in that neighborhood. And this group effort took place of cleaning up this neighborhood and taking a, honestly, a D neighborhood and bringing it up to a C plus 
And that was really cool to watch. And it was really cool to be a part of a collaborative effort between property owners and landlords to make this happen. Because so many times we find that regardless of what sector of the business you're in, everybody's competing against each other. So the only way it was going to work for anybody to profit was for everybody to team up together and work together to make that happen. So that was really cool. So I'd say that after that, the things really got rolling from a flipping standpoint. That's really kind of what I pride myself on doing. I do it on a lot bigger scale now. After that, I got into residential subdivisions and I still do that. There's a lot of money in that. There's certainly a lot of risk in it, but the profit and the risk versus reward, I find, makes sense. Same with office buildings and office complexes. You can apply the same theories that are behind flipping a house, or in my case, flipping a house and flipping apartments and whatever else, and taking that to a nice office park where you've got a B plus or maybe a B minus, nothing wrong with it at all. And the occupancy is probably good too. But you can still go in there and create more value to either take it into an A or get that cap rate better so that you can sell it off to one of the net lease guys and take a profit there. So I've gotten into some more creative things in that sense. I try to stay away from the D multifamily neighborhoods and the flip houses. I certainly just don't have the personnel or the appetite to do anymore. But stepping stones, I think, are really should be the theme of anything that I have to offer to anyone and certainly this conversation of how you can take all these different methods and all these different things, and they can be applied upwards. You can upscale them or you can downscale them. There's a lot of things that the guys on Wall Street that I've encountered do that I kind of downscaled, and I applied to smaller things because they were missing out on those. So those are things that I think people need to keep in mind whenever they're looking at doing deals and trying to do them in a different way. What's an example of that, things you saw people on Wall Street doing that you then applied to what you were doing? There are a lot of guys that are in these triple net lease groups and they want to buy big. One thing that I never understood when I started out and really years in, I still didn't get it. This is a very recent uh, fact that I've discovered and nobody else really thinks about it either. It's hard to sell something that is in between the bottom end of a spread and the top of the spread. But the higher you go, the more difficult it is to find and the bigger the buyer pool you have. So for instance, if you told me a couple of years ago that if I had a portfolio with 600 apartments in it and it was $25 million or a portfolio of Walgreens with 40 of them that were $100 million, myself and I think just about anybody else would say, well, the multifamily portfolio would be easier to move. Sure. Uh, it's a smaller number. There's more of an appetite for multifamily. I mean, just about everybody talks about it and wants it. And I would never have believed that $100 million and up is probably the most required asset type, class, number, whatever you want to call it, out of anything as far as Wall Street is concerned or as far as Singapore is concerned. They probably it's even higher than that. And, and if you think about it, it, it does make logical sense. They can't find anything, one thing to get where they can spend that much money. And for us smaller people, and especially somebody that's starting out, your problem is finding a deal, finding something that's affordable, something that makes sense that you can tap into. But usually it's because you need money. You've got to find capital to do the deal. And these guys, 
have so much money and so much capital that they can't get rid of it quick enough for them to go buy one $2 million complex or buy 10 McDonald's for $20 million. It's not even close to the amount of money that they have to move because the majority of them are real estate investment trusts or they work hand in hand with real estate investment trusts or institutional investors like insurance companies. And they can't move this money fast enough. They've got people who have money sitting there ready to spend it. They want a return and their returns you and I would laugh at. But when you look at it from a gross perspective, it does make sense because you'll have a company like Nationwide. You know, everybody knows Nationwide. Well, Nationwide's collecting all these premiums. People pay into insurance premiums, not really thinking about it. Of course, yeah, some of that money is paid out in claims and collections, but nobody really stops and says, what's going on with all this extra money? Surely they've got extra money, and they do. They've got buckets of it. They all do, and they take that money, and they're funding real estate projects. They fund high-rises in New York. They fund certain municipal joint ventures when it comes to like construction of roads and streets. They'll post bonds. They do all kinds of crazy stuff with their money. But for them, they're wanting serious deals. And for those serious deals, they're hard to find. They're usually getting around 4% for their money. So it's kind of like they are the bank, if that makes sense. But that's where the real estate kind of crosses over into a totally different animal from your mom and pop single family investor versus Wall Street. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to the residential subdivisions and the office parks that you're talking about that you mentioned you flip. And let's talk about one of them, residential subdivisions. We'll start with that. You said the profits are great and the risk versus reward makes sense. So how much can you make doing residential subdivisions? And then can you kind of define that more so we have some context for how large and how you think about it? I would say, and I'm going to do it on my calculator right now. I would say that on average, I'm doing 27 or 28% return on those deals. Now, a lot of guys are not getting those kind of numbers because they're having to pay market prices for their land. But when you're talking about serious investment up front, maybe it's a couple million dollars in land, and then you've got probably four to six million dollars of improvements that are required for streets, water, sewer, you name it, you're going to phase it out. So that helps. You'll be able to do it over several phases instead of having to come up with all that money at once. However, your carry cost is going to dig into that margin. So if you had all the money in the world and you could do these projects with cash, your return would be even stronger than that. But the carry cost really makes it difficult to keep those margins. The other thing that's kind of a challenge is that when you're working with builders, and I work with one DTOP national builder, they have these takedown schedules that have to comply with their corporate financials. So just because you've got 100 lots and they've got an appetite for 100 lots and they need them right now, they may want to hold off and wait to close for two or three more months so that they can show that inventory and that spread on their financials for the next quarter. So that's just something to keep in mind when you're doing that. And I don't know if too many people understand that. Takedown schedules, I think, are fairly common, but that's another example of where the corporate world crosses over into simple deal making. The deal is there. I've got something to sell and they want to buy it. I've got my margin and obviously they're going to make their profit, but you have to kind of finagle it and work it so that it 
benefits them on their back end so that they can show the financials that they need to. When you busted out your calculator just now, what numbers did you put in? Just walk us through how you came up with the 28%. I just did one of the last deals was all because I couldn't remember what it made. And it was $62,000 lot sale and I had $48,000 in it. So I just did 48000 divided by 62000 right. That's better. Yeah, so that's okay. it. So what's the largest residential subdivision that you flipped? Are you doing single lots, or are you doing 10 or 20 or 50 or 100 at a time? Well, maybe I should have been more specific. The subdivisions can go both ways. I develop them, and I'll flip them. Okay. I will find the land. I'll come up with the money to improve it. I'll find the builder, I'll put the whole deal together, and then wait for my money in a takedown schedule. Or there are instances where I will go in where another developer has already developed all of the lots, or they're about to develop the lots and play middleman, essentially, and pull in one of my builder partners or builder clients and flip them over to them. So there are two different situations. Both of them I do. But I would say that the flipping is probably not as regular as having to actually develop it myself. The largest flip that I've done was 170 lots, and I tacked on $2,000 a lot. So to be honest with you, I don't, I don't know what that is on top of my head, 170. I should know this, right? I'm a real estate guy. <laughs> That's all right. Like 300 grand. And that was from, it was a subdivision that was developed. It was about finished out. It wasn't totally finished out, but it was about finished out. And I had a builder partner who was a national guy. And I told him that it was available. I told him, here's the price. I made my deal with the other guy, kind of very similar to wholesaling. But the difference is that I actually closed. A lot of wholesalers assign stuff, and I've never done that. Any deal that I've ever done, I've always had a deed and then transfer that deed to somebody else. So I always take title at some point in the venture. But I would say that that's probably the biggest flip deal that I've done from a residential perspective. And how I came up with that number, I totally just pulled it out of thin air. There was no rhyme or reason or justification for it. It was just I got it as low as I could on the acquisition. And then I thought, how high is reasonable for me to expect for the builder to pay. And they did. And so that's how we made the deal happen. The office park, what's the largest project you've done in terms of dollars or flipping an office park? Because it's really intriguing when you're talking about taking a B office park to an A. I just love to learn more about a specific deal you've done. I would say that the most impressive, and this is still ongoing, it's a group of people. But it was an old company, and I don't remember what the trade was, but it was a, a kind of an industrial place. But it had some office to it, too. But you had these big facilities that were barren that could be used for something else that were just sitting there vacant. So an office park grew out of that. Structures that were only enclosed on the back and the sides and the front was open so that trucks could pull in and out. Those were enclosed and turned into A-minus offices. And the office that was already there, that was also turned into an A-minus office because it was probably C-plus or B-minus at best because it was old. It was probably from the late 70s. And slowly, land was procured around this office park, if you will. It's, at this point, it's still kind of an industrial yard. 
but the land was procured around it and then new buildings were put together. So what ended up happening, and there's, we actually have one lot left still that we've got to do something with, but what you have is steel in some of these buildings that's old, 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 probably from the 50s or older, that were used for the coverings or the roofings for these trucks, where these trucks would pull in or where they would store stuff, hay, whatever it is that you could come up with. Those are enclosed. The steel stayed, but everything else changed. Then you've also got new buildings that came out of nowhere that are all around it. So at the end of the day, you have this hodgepodge of things, <laughs> but the land value made sense for all of it. And the structures were there for you to build onto it. And because of the way that the ordinances were written, you didn't have to go through some of the guidelines that you might normally have to when you're getting plans approved, because technically this was a remodel of existing structures versus brand new plans and brand new footings and slabs and all of that. So I would say that's probably the most interesting project, but it has not been disposed of yet. That's something that I'm pushing for right now. And if we do, that will probably tie back into my conversation about the Wall Street guys and needing to spend money, because I really think that's the best route to go with that. And that park, for you to wrap your mind around it, the total gross leasable area would be it's probably 200,000, 230,000 square feet. Mm-hmm. So it's not a huge thing. Not small either. But it's certainly, it's certainly not tiny. Yeah. What's your role in that? My role in that is actually, at this point, procuring the buyer. But before that, it was tenanting, pulling in tenants. And for someone who hasn't done that, found tenants for an office park that was certainly a non-traditional office park, what are some challenges in that? And then how did you overcome it to get the tenants in there? The challenge is similar to that of any person who basically is going to be a leasing agent, because that's what I did was I was a glorified leasing agent. The biggest issue, it wasn't people always need somewhere to operate. So I would say that there's no shortage of leads from people that need a place to operate, but putting them somewhere and stacking them strategically is the hard part. And I still can't say that I have mastered that one. Oftentimes, and this goes for a lot of other things, this happened in an interstate development that I worked on up here, same situation. When you're in a crunch and you have vacancies and you need to fill them, you're going to try to put in the first person that comes along so that you get some cash flow rolling in. The problem is if you load in the wrong guy, and you're not going to know it when you do it, but if you do, it might ward off other potentials that could have been even better. Or for instance, if you've got a person that comes in who has a non-compete or I can't remember the name of the clause, but basically they're the only person of this entire industry that can be in this entire complex. You might not think that that's that big of a problem. For instance, a real estate office, this is a great example of real estate brokerage. They'll say that we're going to be the only real estate office in this office complex. And you say, that's fine. I don't know why we need any other real estate companies in here anyways. It'd be kind of weird if the building was just full of brokerages. So you let them come in. But then you find out that when you want to load in an attorney who says that they also do real estate closings in another one of the buildings, the real estate company says you can't do that because they handle real estate related activity. And in our lease, it says that we're real estate only. 
The same thing could go with insurance companies. So you have to be careful when you're mixing all these people together because anybody who cross-connects businesses, even though it's ridiculous and you and I know that they're all very separate, they can claim that it somehow impacts their business. And for that reason, on a best case scenario, they'd be entitled to leave, I guess, and not have to pay you for the rest of their lease. Worst case scenario, if you loaded those people in there, they could sue you. So those are some challenges that you can't really overcome until you get to the situation. And usually people are reasonable. But I'd say that when you're filling a space or you're trying like in land development, which is really my main thing lately, when you're loading in users, you've got to be careful and you've got to be proactive on thinking who needs to go here, who's the best fit for here, and what could be a problem doing this? Because you certainly don't want to load in somebody that's going to ward off any potential because no one deal is worth losing three over if they see that this one guy's here and they don't want to be around them. Uh, thank you for sharing that. That's something I wouldn't think about initially, and I'm glad that you brought that up. Let's take a step back. Based on your experience as a real estate investor and entrepreneur, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Never assume. And this has been a hot topic in my office. So if you let me get on my soapbox for a minute, we had a deal very recently, like within the past month, that taught me a lesson that people have told me over and over again, but you never really listened to it. And that's the never assume thing. Four years ago, I would drive by this particular site every day on my way to work. And it didn't have a sign in front of it. No one talked about it. The grass was grown up, but not in a fashion that would make you think that it's an abandoned property. So I drove by it every single day, always having the thought of, I should probably try to buy that, or I should probably try to make a deal with that. But like so many people, I didn't. I even printed out the tax records, and they hung up in my office every day next to some other stuff that I had. So I was forced to look at it every day. So I knew who the owner was even at that point. But I just assumed that this property was so prime off of a major highway that if it was sitting there vacant, there had to be some reason for that. So I didn't do anything with it, and I forgot all about it. I moved offices. I stopped having to see it, stopped having to think about it. And about a month ago, the guy who's in charge of acquisitions, my company, said, hey, I've knocked out all these different things, and we're still working on this. We're waiting to hear back on that. What do you want me to do at the moment, like right now, while we're waiting on everybody else? And I said, I don't know. I was flustered working on something else. And then I said, tell you what, take this address, look it up, and try to get in contact with this guy and tell him I want to buy his stuff. And I wrote down the address, or at least what I thought was the approximate address of that property, and gave it to him. And a couple of days later, the guy calls me saying that he wants to sell it. And I was blown away just at the fact that he wanted to sell it. I just really didn't expect that because what I do a lot of times whenever I'm getting ready to buy anything, I don't know if this is common knowledge or not, but I pull up Secretary of State information and I pull up tax records to see what these people have. That way you know when you're going into a deal, whether you're dealing with a real estate guy or just some guy who happens to have some real estate. And it was apparent that he was a real estate guy. So I was shocked when he called us back and I took his phone call. And I asked him if he'd be interested in selling it. And he said, absolutely. 
he said that up until now, he probably would not have been so interested in selling it, but I just happened to catch him at the right time. So I said, well, what do you want for it? And he said that he really wasn't sure. So I said, okay, well, I'll try to make an offer by tomorrow. And so I got with the attorney and had a contract drawn up and I really didn't know what to offer him. I knew what it was worth and I still know what it's worth, but you never know. You don't want to go in and offer someone a number that is really close to market value when they would have taken $10,000 or whatever. And just so you can have numbers, we'll say that this site's worth a million eight. That's probably what the land is worth. So when I'm thinking about something that's worth a million eight, that's almost 10 acres, I'm going to offer maybe six to $800,000 normally, hoping to get a deal closer to six, but I may have to go closer to eight. But that would typically satisfy most people if they're not an investment person who bought it for investment reasons. So I actually ended up coming up with a number of 350000 because I thought this deal's so wild, I'm going to push the envelope on it anyways and see what happens. So I offered him three fifty, and I thought I'll probably never hear back from him again. And sure enough, he calls me back and he says, I got your offer. I'm like, oh God. And then he <laughs> says, I was wondering if maybe you could do 400000 And I said, I'm going to have to think about it because that's really pushing it. We hadn't anticipated spending that much money. So we crunched our numbers and then came back up with 375. So I told him 375 was the best that we could do. And then he said, that's great. And he was tickled to death. He was thrilled. He was happy. His basis in the property is like $1,800. He's had it so long. So that's where we made the deal at. And we are pending closing on selling that property at the moment for a really good profit. I can't say what it is yet because it's not done, but the numbers that we're talking about are very impressive. And so I would say that the number one thing I even remind myself daily now is to never assume because you think you might know something or you think even when all the facts point to a certain outcome, more than likely somebody has not played every angle of devil's advocate to see what can happen. Mm. Congratulations, but I will hold the full congratulations till after it closes. But regardless of if it closes right now, you still have that property and you've got a lot of equity in it. So you've already won the major battle. Now you just got to close it out. That's pretty cool. Thanks for sharing that. We're going to do a lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Sure. All right. First, a quick word from our best ever partners. Best ever listeners, we have launched bestevercauses.com. That's bestevercauses.com. We profile a nonprofit or a cause that is near and dear to our heart, get the word out about their cause, and also donate money towards their cause. If you'd like to, one, learn more about the causes that we're profiling, we do one a month, then go to bestevercauses.com. And if you want to suggest a cause that we profile that is near and dear to your heart, then go to bestevercauses.com and there's a little form at the bottom of the page where you can submit one and we'll check it out. Okay, real quick, best ever book you've recently read? Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. What's a mistake you've made on a deal? Getting in too deep, too fast, financially, and also bringing in people into the deal. So just all across the board, taking on way too much, way too quick. Best ever way you like to give back? Give back? Yep, like give back to the community. 
physically volunteering and trying to do things that pertain to housing for the less fortunate is definitely my preferred method of charitable contribution to society. And how can the best ever listeners learn more about what you're doing? They can shoot me an email at ab at westmontcapgroup.com. Thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, Alex. Thanks for talking about some specific deals and a couple perhaps paradigm shifts in our minds. One is which one's easier to move, a $20 million apartment portfolio or a $100 million single tenant portfolio with a bunch of Walgreens? And perhaps it's $100 million because of the Wall Street money looking to spend large chunks of cash and their need for lower returns because it's such high dollars that they're spending. And then also the never assume story. I think that's something that regardless of where we're at in our journey, we can all take to heart. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day and we'll talk to you again soon. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it.